Hey there, stylish ThoughtBot podcast listener. We're back with another ThoughtBot swag sale. For the rest of the year, you can show your support for our podcast with shirts, pint glasses, and even limited edition socks. We have two new designs specifically for giant robots and bike shed t-shirts that have only before been available at conferences. For the production and shipping, we are proud to once again be partnering with Social Imprints, who provide career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And with me today are Brendan Swartz and Chris Savage, founders of the video hosting platform Wistia. Brendan, Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks Glad for to be us. here. So you are based in Somerville. Cambridge. Right. Cambridge. Cambridge. Oh, did you move? Did we, you used we, to be in Somerville? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. when you were on five years ago, at episode <laughs> oh sixty-five, I think you were based in Somerville. Yeah. But now you're in Cambridge. Yeah. Just across the river from yeah. where we are. I think we moved there four years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll from be, Davis. We, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And how big is Wistia now? It's about a hundred people. Mm-hmm. So last time we were here, I would guess if it was about five years ago, we were probably fifteen. And what is it that you say Wistia does now? Yeah. So uh, we basically say that we're a video platform. Mm -hmm. So that's hosting, management, analytics for your videos. We have a new product that helps you make videos. And then we've made a ton of content teaching people how to shoot, how to edit, how to light. And we really just try to empower people to get more out of video and use video better at work. Mm -hmm. What does your typical customer look like? So it's usually small, medium-sized businesses that are using video in their marketing to educate people. We're seeing more and more companies that have the ability to make videos internally, mm-hmm. but still it's across the board. I mean, you get yoga studios that are have a really video-centric business, and we have lots of small parts of big companies, mm-hmm. but it's really focused on customers that want to buy the best product, want to buy it self-service, care about brand, all those types of things. Yeah. So you guys are a I, great oh, sorry, customer. Yeah. I was going to say, so I should say, like, in the interest of full disclosure, that ThoughtBot's a customer. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> great uh, studio here, by the way. Yeah. Hopefully yeah, we have done a great job. Uh, influence some yes, of this to some definitely. small degree. Definitely. Uh, Tom has gone to some of your events, uh, which you run. How did you arrive at doing the events, and has it been effective? Yes. we. The way that we got started with that is we – this was back when we were in Somerville in Davis. We were like, oh, it'd be cool to have an event. We've, we haven't met a lot of our customers in person. So we sent out an email to our whole list and said, hey, we're going to have people over for an afternoon of video learning. I don't know what, it was very we vague. We but we mm-hmm. didn't even have a list back then. It was like it was like 40 people that were emailed about it. And then we put it on Twitter and we said, hey, oh, that's we're, right. yeah, we're having this like event on Saturday it's called Wistia Fest. It's free. <laughs> and we had three hours of content that we made for it. So we like committed ourselves to this, had no, many, no idea how many people were going to show up. And I think it was probably like 40 people showed up that first day. Mm-hmm. And we taught them everything we knew about hosting and analytics and all this kind of stuff. We actually made a video with them. Mm-hmm. and uh, Yeah, teaching them how to shoot yeah. video. And we had just started to do content marketing and had made some posts that were, were pretty popular for us that were all around production, which had nothing to do with our product. 
And so it was kind of a test, like, do people show up? And people showed up and it was awesome. And, and people came from, I feel like we were pretty blown away. We just assumed it would be people who were in Boston who could just, you know, walk over or take the tea or something like that. But there were people who drove from basically every surrounding state. Like some people came like a few hours just for an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we knew we had something. And then we got really busy with other stuff. Like the core business really started to grow. And we had to table that idea of doing something in person. It took us another couple of years before we did the first true WCFS that was like an actual conference mm-hmm. where people would pay and show up and stay. Um, and now we've done that four times. About 400 people come. And it's been great. I mean, and mostly it's, you know, whenever you run a conference, there's obviously like how much does it cost to put on and how much revenue does it generate. And we don't do these to try to make money. It, they do usually a tiny bit, like cover the costs. Mm-hmm. We really do it to get in person with customers and with potential partners and potential customers and to learn. Um, and it's always those connections between attendees and the team that give us actually ideas for new things to do. Mm-hmm. So the product we just launched in June, Soapbox, we launched it at WistiaFest, but it was actually getting ready for WistiaFest last year combined with some hackathons and talking to customers who came there that we really realized that this could be a product. Do you have like a formal support structure for making Soapbox and getting it out the door as a new product or it came about organically, but at what point did you say, this is something we need to invest in it? We had talked about it as like a rough idea for probably three or four months. Actually, it was, yeah, it was at the Wistia Fest the year before that we were talking about this trend that we had been seeing in video that mm-hmm. kind of was the key insight into soapbox that it was getting easy enough that people could send video to a single person mm-hmm. as opposed to just using it for your marketing and we had talked about it we got like really hyped up on the idea we were ready to go and it was difficult to make progress because mm-hmm. that was not anybody's job right. to be doing that we're like well we were like all like just like trying to wind people up to be like well we're, 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 we got to make this thing we got to make this thing and then it wasn't until basically this year in January that we created a team and said like, this is your job. Just this do, is your job. Yeah. do nothing mm-hmm. but this. And it was, yeah. And it was confusing for everybody at first. Let me tell you. Yeah. Our, ourselves included, but everyone's like, why are you doing this? Why are we doing a new product? Does this mean that our core product is not good? What is this? Like all this stuff. And it took a little time of actually, well, Soapbox is built on top of Wistia. It's using our public APIs. It's the same thing that everybody else is using. And like, we think that we're solving part of the video puzzle, but there's a broader piece of the puzzle we could help solve. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, we had like a beta version of it within like two months that people could use internally. And it was clear that people were using it. Yeah. Was it frustrating at first from a founder perspective to realize how difficult it was to make a new product having seen having made wistia and yes. so quickly and having it come together and then to be trying to do that again within your <laughs> own company and seeing how difficult yeah, it was I, I think like culturally it's mm-hmm. almost the opposite of where we we're trying to go right mm-hmm. because everything becomes <laughs> about like scaling a big system and infrastructure and scaling out support and documentation that's built out over years and all this stuff. And now you have a brand new thing, which creates chaos basically. Mm-hmm. And it was very eye opening to realize we'd have to use that to our advantage and change how we thought about building a new product in that mm-hmm. kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Well, we had, I feel like the thing that made it less frustrating is once we realized we worked so hard once we had the initial kind of spark of Wistia and some early paying customers to really narrow the focus and make sure that we were building that thing. So mm-hmm. we had effectively built a machine that is optimized for right. growing that business. Yeah. And so the fact that it wasn't good at working on a new product 
was actually a positive right. thing. It yes. just was then became like, how are we going to actually change this to get this thing done? Because we believe it's really important to the future of the business. Yeah. So you ended up creating a team just to work on that? Yeah. So it was a product team and that the way we think of that fairly standard, like product manager, a designer embedded, and some software engineers. Mm-hmm. It also had people from marketing and sales on that team because cool. a lot of it was exploration and yeah. prototyping. Yeah. And is that team still working on it? And has it grown? How have you managed that? Yeah, it's pretty much the same team. Um, there's a new product manager on it because we didn't have enough to do mm-hmm. this. So the original product manager was our head of design who that he was doing like three mm-hmm. jobs at once. Mm-hmm. But the team since launch at Wistia Fest, we've expanded the team now that it's like out in the wild. It's probably more than double the size at this point in terms of people consistently on it. The core Mm -hmm. team, yeah. Yeah. So I ask, you know, whether it was frustrating and what you solved it because this is a problem that exists like lots of people, (laughs) you know, that you have an existing company, it's set up a certain way, and then you have a new idea and executing that new idea within your existing organization can be really difficult. And it's part of like the innovator's dilemma and, and all that stuff. So it sounds like having a product team focus on it was an effective strategy for you guys. Is there something, other advice that you'd give to people? I think one of the things that we did that really worked is we set a crazy short time period mm-hmm. for this. Within, I think, three months, we decided we were going to launch at Wistia Fest, mm-hmm. which was then three months away. Mm-hmm. So everyone thought, ourselves included, like, this is a short timeline of stuff. And everyone had assumptions about what was going to make it into a product. And what did a product need to be if it's a Wistia product coming out the door? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my head, I remember thinking, oh, we'll definitely have stats and we'll have all these other things in it. Because, of course, like, Wistia is known for our analytics and that got to get that in there. And we'll have customizations. And we'll, you, know, you go through the list of stuff in your head that makes sense to kind of, like, translate over from Wistia into this new thing. And actually, the reality was we ended up realizing the only way we could launch anything if it was if it was truly an MVP. Like if mm-hmm. it truly had a ton of stuff that we want to put into it that was not going to make it. And that's what you would do if you were launching something new. Right. And it feels like the thing you can't do when you're actually <laughs> ru- like running a company that has customers that are using a product. And yeah, it, there's a brand and expectations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's it, a lot more challenging. Yeah. And it I think that forced a ton of hard conversations. A ton. I mean, I remember a month before, everyone's like, when does this need to be done so we can actually launch this? Because we wanted to do this at Wistia Fest and walk out on stage and do the demo and show everybody. And then the, someone will click a button and the emails will go out. And it's like, how early does it need to be done to make sure we can actually do that? Yeah. And it was like, well, we can't put any of this other stuff in there we want. It. It's mm-hmm. got to be the fundamentals. It's, you, basically, you can record your webcam, you can record your screen, and then you can make these transitions. Mm-hmm. And we think that that's enough that you can make a video that's more professional. And you can't download it. There's no analytics. It's only You can't embed it. It's like every feature that makes perfect sense is not in there. But we felt like if the core thing wasn't valuable enough, we couldn't do it. And I think that even now when we talk about new ideas for stuff, it's hard to imagine like doing the true MVP, but I think that's the, that was the difference between us launching or not. Mm-hmm. We clearly made zero progress until we had a dedicated team. Yep. And that is a fairly obvious one. If you mm-hmm. don't have it, if it's like people's part-time work or yeah. something like that, I feel like this would never have gotten done. Well, or how involved were the both of you? We were involved 
day to day, especially too much at the beginning. Or mm, the right amount. I think we you crowded can ask the team about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that at the beginning, it was like trying to create a shield. It was yeah. like, okay, here's a shield for this new thing. Everyone's like confused by why we're doing it. Like, okay, that's fine. Just blame us. Like, just mm-hmm. we're the shield. And then pretty quickly, we were able to pull farther away from it because then you easily can just screw it up, right? Like right. I had been too close. I would have. I was the person advocating for all the shit in there, so I mm-hmm. would have screwed it up personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was pretty important, I think, to like create the shield and then get out of the way. Mm-hmm. I think it worked reasonably well, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, it got out the door, right? In and you met the deadline. Yeah, we met the deadline. People actually use it. It's had a, a pretty good number of installs so far. We're mm-hmm. like, we've gotten enough qualitative feedback and. And even quantitative to be like, wow, we should keep investing in this or something here. Yeah. And it's a free product now for people to use? Yeah. So it's a it's a free tool. You inst- It's a Chrome extension. Mm-hmm. And you install it. And then you can record your webcam and your screen at the same time. Then you can edit between them. Um, so think of it like live TV. Like mm-hmm. if you have an anchor on the news, like giving you an update on what's going on. If they never cut away from that anchor, you see that anchor like go back to their notes or smoke a cigarette, like whatever the thing is that they're doing when like that cutaway is happening. And it's actually, well, that stuff sounds kind of interesting right now. Usually that would make it feel like obviously much less professional and yeah. more boring. We're trying to take that same premise of you're just going to pick between what's on the screen and create those transitions so that you end up making something much more professional than you could have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And we've really tried to constrain um, what types of videos you can make so that it's like foolproof. And uh, that means you can't trim anything from the middle of the video. It, you could just trim the ends. Like it's very, very limited functionality. And our hope is that by removing enough of the variables, people can actually make videos who couldn't have been able to make them before. Yeah. And the idea is that they're meant for an individual person or a small group of people. That was the original insight that if we could make it easy enough to make professional video, you could send it on mm-hmm. an individual basis. Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of people doing that, but we're also seeing people using it for marketing videos just because mm-hmm. you can pretty quickly and easily make something that looks really professional. So people are using it kind of in a video presentation way where they might have uh, a Kino file or PowerPoint file and they're narrating that. Could be like a business pitch, could be a product overview. Yeah. could be any mm-hmm. kind of thing that they would actually either put on their website because we added afterwards a feature that links it to Wistia so you can put your video there and embed it yeah. or send it to a big group of people. Yeah, yeah. I think the sales use case has been interesting because we've seen people use it kind of in two ways. Mm-hmm. One is to try to stand out in someone's inbox, basically, and they'll make a video for one particular prospect and say like, hey, like I saw you signed up or I want you to sign up or I was looking at your website and noticed this thing and here's a person with your website like giving mm-hmm. you feedback. And we're seeing a lot of success there. And then actually the other thing is in follow-up where after someone does a sales call, you know, usually you send an email saying like, this is what we discussed. If you send that video follow-up, then whoever you're talking to can take that and share that around internally. And now they have a face to go with the company. Yeah. And we've seen a, a huge amount of success with that internally at Wistia, but we've also seen tons of customers mm-hmm. using Soapbox in that way. Have there been any surprises in terms of what you thought was going to happen with the product and what's actually happened or how people would use it? Or... I don't know. My mind just is going to this one fairly inappropriate <laughs> Oh, my God. You're <laughs> <time> going there. <laughs> you can edit this, this part out. But 
you know, our world is business video. Right. That's like what we are mostly. You you can can see where this is going. Oh, really? um, (laughs) I was in a meeting with the uh, Chris, who's the product manager for Soapbox, and uh, Heather, who's the head of marketing. Some other people may be in the room. And um, Kristen was like, oh, Ezra, who's on our BI team, just built me a new dashboard so I can take a look at some of these videos that people are making to see what's happening. So she goes. To click into one of them, um, it was a highly inappropriate image, <laughs> which then she just left the room uh, screaming and left it on a 60-inch TV. Um, <laughs> but basically, what is? Will this all get bleeped out or what? Yeah. Okay. This is Go so. <laughs> <laughs> we were obviously like curious, like why someone would use right, it. There right. are many free video tools right. that exist. Like, why would you use Soapbox for mm-hmm. something like this? But it turned out that it was pretty innovative. It was someone watching pornography on yeah. their screen and recording it, and then enjoying. Right. Right, watching pornography on their webcam. Don't know why someone would do this, but we do not encourage that usage. Right, uh, that is. Is this so? I, I, I actually, I wasn't terms planning of service on asking about this, but I was going to say this banned. is part of your terms of service, right? Yeah, you, you don't allow adult content or nope. adult businesses. No. no, was that a explicit explicit decision? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was well. It's an explicit decision not to allow adult content because. Mm-hmm coming from the hosting business if you have adult content like it's it can actually screw up like how the other content is is handled right mm-hmm. like with our cdns things need to be whitelisted if you have uh, inappropriate mm-hmm. things like there's just no in- inappropriate stuff on on wistia um in general and we've had to ban accounts for years over lots of different inappropriate mm-hmm. things and so that was basically like a smart move i think for us just to improve the experience for all customers so this particular soapbox user was banned mm-hmm. but yeah it was explicit yeah <laughs> so what's what's next for soapbox do you guys have plans for it yeah we are imminently launching a paid version mm-hmm. uh, which was always the plan behind it and again, kind of this like very MVP style. The most two requested features are to be able to download your video mm-hmm. um, so that you could put it on YouTube, put it in a keynote presentation, do uh, whatever you will with it. And also, t- there is some pretty minimal branding on the free product. If you send someone to a web page with the soapbox video, it says mm-hmm. soapbox on it. So that would be removed yeah. with the paid plan. Yeah, and we have lots of things we want to do with it in the future. Mm-hmm. Again, this is why I need to be kept farther away from some of these <laughs> things. But the goal was like, we always believe that when people are paying for something, they just give you different feedback. And launching with something minimal, we know that those people who are signing up and paying are going to give us probably very, very different feedback than the feedback we're getting from just free users. Yeah. And our goal is to like maximize and optimize to get, to get as much time of people paying and using Soapbox together so we can truly understand the value. Mm-hmm. And then there's a million different directions we can go with it. The lots of obvious things are like adding stats into it, adding the ability to push it into other platforms directly, adding more transition-like features. So we're excited about the future of it, but we, it does feel like very, very yes. early days of it. So how are you personally or as a company balancing now with the work on Soapbox and the work on Wistia and everything that you're trying to accomplish? like? What's your day-to-day like? Now that we have two products, 
one piece that has been kind of confusing is what is the vision that marries those things together? Mm-hmm. Which has always been, it's one of those funny things. It feels always very clear to the two of us where it's like, yeah, we're, this makes perfect sense. Like we're on the same page. Like this is where we're going, right? But I don't think that we've done a great job of laying that out like in a really far trajectory for the company. Um, so we've been spending a lot of time doing that and how both of these products and future products help achieve like a bigger vision for what Wistia is. Yeah. Because I think that has been a challenge of how do you balance resources across this. It's been fairly easy because basically we have two product teams, more mm-hmm. or less. The rest of the organization mostly supports kind of the hosting side of the business mm-hmm. because Soapbox is much newer and you don't have a paid product yet. But that question is starting to come up a lot, which is how much do you invest you mm-hmm. know, in the different things, mm-hmm. which is a challenging question. Chris, do you do different things? Do you work on the same things? Um, I think like oh, yeah, a, I didn't answer your question at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think different and the same. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time together recently talking about like the vision and trying to map that out. I know it doesn't even sound like it's work to mm-hmm. have someone say, we spent a bunch of time thinking about what the vision is. <laughs> but the reality is it actually turns out that it is. Like, And figuring out how to describe it in the right way I think is like really important. I have been trying to spend more of my time thinking longer term and talking to people I don't usually talk to. So it's like talking to customers proactively, not just reactively, but like trying to talk to people who are using Wistia in lots of different ways, who want to use Soapbox in lots of different ways, trying to talk to people in markets that don't like use much video yet and seem like they're going to next mm-hmm. um, and trying to talk to people in other companies, usually trying to talk to people who are farther along from us and the people who are really, really early mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. So I just have discovered at least in the last probably six months that I need a hell of a lot of time to think. And I didn't really see thinking as work for a long time. And I think it became really clear that it was like untenable to be crazy involved in everything and also think about where we're going next. Yeah. I want to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor for this episode, Storyblocks. So one of the first websites that I ever built was yarn.com. And the funny thing is, this was probably back in 1995. But if you go there today, it still pretty much looks like what I designed back in 1995. But even back in 1995, getting quality stock images of the yarn that I needed was harder and more expensive than I imagined. I wish that I had Storyblocks then. Uh, What Storyblocks is, is you pay one monthly fee and then you get access to the whole member library, 400,000 images, 150,000 videos, 100,000 audio clips, and I'm sure that they're adding new stuff all the time. Everything's royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects. So go to storyblocks.com slash robots to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149 a month. That's storyblocks, S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash robots to download anything from thousands of images, videos, and tracks and unlock discounts on millions more. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring today's podcast. And now back to the show. So what are your current titles and have they changed over the years? I am the CTO mm-hmm. and Chris is the CEO. That's how we set things up 11 and a half years ago, yeah. which hasn't changed. I think that has worked well. So bit mm-hmm. back to your question of what do I actually do? That is like overseeing engineering product and design side of things. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, there's a lot of collaboration necessary yeah. across all aspects of the business. Now, do you have other members of the sort of executive team now? Yep. We have a COO who joined us two and a half years ago or so, and that was, uh, was a great hire, somebody who had like scaled companies before and mm-hmm. has experience like with management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. we were very much like ragtag flat organization before our COO joined. We have like a VP of marketing, VP of finance, VP of business intelligence, uh, chief of business operations. We have a bunch of, uh, you know, really a grown the management team. Were all of those after the COO? Was the CEO sort of the first executive level hire that you made? It was a combination. Um, mm-hmm. One, a couple were pretty early employees that just grew into senior roles. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another one who was right before the COO, another one that was right after. So how did you find those people? You know, it's it's tough. I it, would We, you know, to talk about like our VP of marketing, for example, mm-hmm. we talked to over like 100 candidates, mm-hmm. took us like 10 months. Um, and then we end, ended up going with someone who was a referral. <laughs> and it was yeah. like somebody who was referred to us by the first candidate we spoke <laughs> with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in the case of most, so there were some people who've been on the team for a long time, like Chris said, and have yeah. kind of scaled into those roles. And then a bunch of the other roles were people who are working with us on a part-time basis or doing mm-hmm. consulting. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to be frank, like we're pretty lucky that we convinced them to work with us. And it was mm-hmm. through the consulting, they're like, oh, this business is interesting. And they got really involved in like the the problems that we were facing and saw how the impact that they could have. Right. So this, you know, it's like the long con kind of with a lot of those people. And then you get to know them right. well and what, what they could add. To right. The and if it's working, then you probably get to the point where it's like, well, this is working. We're either going to hire somebody to replace you and do yes. your job, or you can join. It might not be as hard as you if you have something compelling. Yeah. Oh right. Um, yes, yeah. I'm definitely underselling. I mean, yeah. I think Wistie is a great place yeah. to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're completely. Underselling. But they're very talented individuals. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know what you mean. Yeah. We actually, that's uh, this is like a trick that I guess we we're giving you to really say it. Like, there's a lot of people we've hired who are like, "Oh, just consult. Come on, just consult with us for a little mm-hmm. bit." Like. And then they're like, okay, fine. I'll make the time. Like, I'll consult. And then they consult, and then we get them deeper, deeper, deeper in, and then we hire them. Mm-hmm. And that's happened with our creative director. That happened with our former head of support. That's happened with a bunch of engineers. That's happened with, like, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been one of the things in the back pocket. Because then, and I think this is really true, we just want everyone who joins as much as possible to be intrinsically motivated to be at Wistia. Yeah. And when you do that, you know what you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Like everybody does. Mm-hmm. And I think from like a candidate perspective, it's the same thing. It's like you don't have to make a huge commitment to us and you can really truly try it. If it doesn't work out and there's something about the way we work that you think is too crazy or annoys you or whatever, just don't come full time. It's like super easy. Mm-hmm. But the opposite's also true because we talk about that so openly that usually when people join, they get really deep in. Yeah. How did you know that it was the right time to bring on a COO? So we didn't. I mean, we were Uh kind of like terrified of it, but we thought that we needed help. Did anybody tell you that? Or did you have outside people telling you? People uh, tell you both sides, I feel like. Some people are like, it's way too early. Other people are like, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Like, you need (laughs) the help with like management and scaling. Like, Mm -hmm. there's so much stuff that you guys are too in the weeds on. And you could really use like another set of hands to someone who really knows how to do it you should do that. It will be really helpful to the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would not have done, it, it was also particular, I think, yeah. to, so Kevin is is the COO, that we had been working with him and there was some, like that was happening versus just like, 
hey, we need a COO. Right. Um, let's go out and find one. I think also COO is one of those, at a lot of companies, it's different at every yes. company what it actually is. And so, like, if ThoughtBot were to hire a COO or make a job description for what our COO does, it would be very different than a lot of other companies. Yeah. And I think that's, like, kind of why it just comes down to the person. Yeah. Because it is a super malleable role. And uh, I think that's, like, when we were 25 people, we had no org structure. We were completely Mm -hmm. flat. And we used to talk about how flat we are and how great we are that we're so flat and that, like, flat had become a value of the company. And then at that moment, chaos was starting to break loose. Yeah. And we realized that we had become giant bottlenecks for the business, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, well, we hadn't said what the org, org structure was. If you didn't get Chris and Brendan excited about the thing, probably wasn't happening. And so it actually just created this weird problem where people couldn't own problems completely. Yep. But to now we had to go and take a bunch of people joined Wistia because it was flat. And we told them, this is why you should pick us. Yeah. And we had to figure out like, how do you institute an org structure and how do you help people understand like what that org structure is and why an org structure is good and we weren't sure that we believed it ourselves and so it wasn't until we had like all of the infrastructure in place to realize actually having a great manager is critical and people grow way faster and that's the case and you want to go to somebody who has a plan of what's going on next and actually makes it easier to do better work and you can grow faster and all these things happen mm-hmm. when you get into the right place and when we brought kevin on it was like he helped us audit the organization he basically came in and talked to a ton of the team about what was working, what was not. And they told us, like, we need managers, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, wow, that's the most popular thing. That, how are we going to do this? And, like, what does the manager look like? So it was incredibly helpful. But I also think, to Brennan's point, we never made the list cause to, to go out and look for a COO because we didn't know what we would have looked for. Yeah. Did you lose people along the way during that change? Not very many. I don't, and I don't think we lost anybody because of that change. We yeah. lost people that we hired too quickly, where we went through a couple hiring sprees, went to like th- from 30 to 60 people in six months. Mm-hmm. And then we went again from 60 to 90 in six months. And in both of those hiring sprees, we hired people who wanted to be at Wistia, didn't actually want to be in the role they're in, or like they weren't the right fit, or we weren't the right fit for them, or we overpromised, or they overpromised. Like, and so there were definitely people in there that were unhappy, I would say. But for the most part, actually, I think... Yeah, not from yeah. that itself. No. There, there was some other stuff that was related to that, I would say, which is we are super creatively driven, mm-hmm. like ourselves. Mm-hmm. And as a company, that was really defining to Wistia. But at the same time, there was like massive... That was like the cause of like chaos. We were like on the extreme end with mm-hmm. the flatness and the mm-hmm. chaos. Right. Yeah. And that was like highly valued. And we were like, this is really difficult to get to the next level. This is not going to scale well. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, Kevin is complementary to us in that way, like way more structured thinker and like rigorous and like analytical. Like he's a creative guy also. But in the transforming of the business to, be, to scale better, the, the people who are there who are like, it's like a creative like chaos mm-hmm. land, like some of those people, like that was tense I think for those people and it's a tough balance to get right like we're still working on that like how do you balance those Mm -hmm. those two things and in like what parts of the business and even the words to talk about it we didn't even really have I don't think at that time I think a lot of founders are very scared and I'll put myself in this group of changing the company along the way even when you feel like it's for the better 
and are convinced of that, it can still be really difficult because you're worried of screwing it up, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and losing people along the way and that kind of thing. And uh, maybe it's it's only success um, that sort of screens out the people that I talk to, but I don't talk to a lot of people who say, you know, we needed to make these changes to make a better organization, and then we did them, and it failed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I feel like if anything, I agree with you because almost you you have to constantly, constantly change things, Mm -hmm. and just a lot of them don't work. But we all get used to that fact that, Mm -hmm. of course, a huge percentage of the changes don't work. Right. But you do those, so you find the ones that do work. Right. Over the years, I've come to learn. It's actually staying the same that is the ultimate worst thing to yes. do. Yeah, that is like a death sentence. Yeah. So what's driving your change now? Like what's driving the growth at Wistia? Not in terms of like where your new customers are coming from or anything, but like why Why are you growing? Why did you go from 60 to 90 people and now 100 and probably beyond? Like what's causing you to do that now? Well, so it's funny. When we first started the company, we were probably like six months into building, the, maybe a little more than that, 10 months into building the business. I remember talking to my dad and uh, he's like, what are you and Brendan doing? Like, what mm. are you trying to get out of this business? And I was like, dad, the dream is to make $60,000 a year. And if we can do that, then Brendan and I can survive and we'll be great. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> that's your goal? Like, that's, that's your end goal of this thing? And along the way, like, we just kept hitting milestones. And I feel like every time you hit a milestone, you're like, oh, wow, we can do that? Like, we can run a million-dollar business, we're going to run a $10 million business? Like, that's crazy. Like, I saw people doing that, and I didn't know that I could do it, too. Part of it is just, like, I think the fundamental, like, challenge of growing a company is actually really fun. And it's really hard. And there's a lot of big problems that come up. But it's actually, like, I think a pretty creative process to figure out how to grow and what type of growth you want. And for us, it's taken us a while to kind of figure out that actually that's been one of the core motivators um, the whole time. It just it changes very drastically with the stage we've been at. Yeah, and something that we say that we don't, like, easier said than done, and I think we have a lot of work to really prove this, is it's really motivating to be able to grow and take bigger creative risks at scale. That seems like the opposite of what a company should do. You get bigger, and then you kind of, like, you've de-risked it and you need to not take as big swings and you need to like really like focus things in. And that's something that's been really motivating. Like building a second product was like a super motivating, like this year, it feels Mm -hmm. amazing. Like that we're like on the cusp of a paid launch. And I feel like there's just like way more stuff in that vein that we want to do that requires like more scale to do on a a Mm -hmm. bigger platform. Did you guys take funding originally? So we started the business bootstrapping and then went about two years before we had we had enough progress. We had revenue to cover like our basic expenses and mm-hmm. we realized we needed more people to help us grow the company. Right. Like, we felt like we're onto something, but we need help. And so we raised an angel round uh, about two years in. And then we raised another angel round two years later. So we raised about one point four million total in two thousand eight and twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we Right before we raised this second round of angel funding, we were about to run out of money. Mm-hmm. So we were like just starting to get traction. And because we had hired two other people and we were paying ourselves a salary for the first time, you know, the burnt, well, it looks modest now, but was a, a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And 
when we raised that second round, we were like dead set on getting to profitability. Mm -hmm. um, and that was extremely motivating to us because we felt like once we did that, we were free. We could do what we wanted. We couldn't mm -hmm. be killed. And that was a really big moment for us, which is probably six years ago now. Yeah, so how long was it after you did that, that angel round to the point you got to profitability about? It was probably two and a half years, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it's also funny, too, that we say sometimes it feels like we're running a real business. You know, like right. we're also, you know, there's always a question of could we invest more, more quickly, grow faster, kind of, you know, run the business like mm -hmm. at a loss in order to achieve faster growth. Which always in the end for any business, you know, it exists, I assume, to make money. I, don't, I never went to business school, but that and running in this like very sustainable way has always felt really natural yep. and good for us. And that's something really that I think is a reason that we have been so successful and that we've, it's like almost counterintuitive. Like the reason we've had this growth is because of like focusing on what really works yeah. and running in a sustainable fashion. Yeah. From my perspective, it shouldn't be abnormal to want to run a profitable business. It's crazy to even have to say that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, right. you might be in the minority, though. I know. Or well, we it's, might it's be just part of I think, the... I think all three of us happen to be in the minority on this. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is crazy talk. So one of the challenges with that is, you know, you, you guys have taken money. And, you know, if there is no big growth or exit, that can affect that outcome for people. How do you deal with that? That's a question that we've been facing for a while, like how will we take care of uh, angel investors mm -hmm. and even employees? Like, what, right. do you, what do you do? And so we'd always been trying to wrestling with how, what the answer to this should be. And in our minds, it was always about creating optionality historically. Mm -hmm. It was like, all right, well, someday maybe we'll go public or someday maybe we'll raise a giant growth round and we'll do some other thing. Or maybe we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And that was kind of the default setting. Mm -hmm. um, and then over the last couple of years, we tried pushing harder on growth and like really running to the edge of reinvesting every dollar back into growth. And what we discovered was in that period of time, we made a bunch of mistakes and we did a lot of things that we thought were pretty silly in the first place, but did them mm -hmm. and they didn't really work. And like our core business, like and everyone who was focused on just making the core better was like humming along better than ever. And we started to realize, you know, actually... For us, a lot of the things that have always been best about Wistia and have been really fun have been like the really long-term things. Mm -hmm. Content marketing, for example, it's been huge for us. But it probably took two years of doing that every day, every week, before you could actually justify the return. But that's exactly why I think it worked. And I think mm -hmm. why it was like, it's actually really differentiated our, us in our space. And we started thinking like, are we taking enough long-term bets? Like, are we playing the game with enough courage? And we realized, no, we're not when we are not profitable. We need to be profitable. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of made that decision. And then what that meant is that if we're going to run profitably and we want to take a really, really long-term view, and a lot of these investors invested nine years ago, um, we should probably do something. And so we're actually right now just raising a debt round. And the company will be taking on debt so that we can buy back angels and basically reset for the future of the business for Wistia to be a very long-term um, mm -hmm. profitable company. That's really interesting. How long has it taken you to get to the point where, first of all, making that decision, but then also lining, lining it up? A long time. <laughs> <laughs> Nine years. We were, <laughs> yeah, there was, as like Chris is talking about, like the past few years really pushing for growth and obvious 
question that we were wrestling with is, should we raise a round of growth equity? Mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of people knocking at the door because the fundamentals of the business are really sound, really good product market fit, arguably like weaker on the like, you know, as they would say, like go to market strategy or like, mm-hmm. like marketing and sales, which we have been doing a lot of work on. But I think people can look at that and see like, this is a great investment opportunity. I would agree with them. <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we talked to a lot of those folks and I guess like we were like in the forest of confusion, like around this where we're like, we'd, we'd talk to people right, and kind of like go down the path and be like, people are really smart. Like they, they have like really mm-hmm. interesting insights about the business. And there's something that always felt a little bit off to us, yep. not, not about the people, but about mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. option. But again, kind of being in the software space and like the set of advisors that we have right. kind of have around the business, that is like the mm-hmm. default choice, right? Like if things are going well, raise an equity investment. And the two of us have never taken any money out of the business. Mm-hmm. That's like the pitch mm-hmm. is like, oh, you, you know, you'll become too mm-hmm. risk averse, take some money out of the business and be able to take like a really big swing. And like the really big swing piece is like very appealing of that. But we would always, we would kind of get to the end of some of those conversations and then the piece about being able to take bigger creative risks at scale, that was the piece that was always difficult with that, which right. is like we want more control of the business and to feel like we can make some of those really long-term bets that might look crazy to some people. Or like sometimes it's difficult to justify mm-hmm. in the short term. Did you think about, and I'm not a finance person, so I, you know, but was there something you considered where if you're operating profitably, could you just start paying out to yourselves and early investors and yeah we looked at that and we we realized also you know we believe in the long term of the business mm-hmm. and so by doing this in like one motion okay. we kind of give ourselves way more freedom in the future yeah because um, you kind of always and have more that, potential upside yeah and you kind of always have that option as a way to like really take care of investors, it's like actually we've had great investors. They've been really patient and really happy about like how things have gone. But like they invested nine years ago, right? And for us, we look at like we're both thirty four. Like we could do this for another fifteen or twenty years, mm-hmm. and that might seem insane to say, but it's like when you love what you do and you work with really great people and you feel like the problems you're working on are really interesting. Why not? Like you know, most great companies I think were built over a long time, not a mm-hmm. short time. So where is the, you probably can't say exactly where it's coming from, but like, where is the debt financing coming from? Is it a bank? Is it another kind of institution? Yeah, it's another kind of institution, very similar to a bank. Mm-hmm. It does a lot of banking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone might know what debt financing actually means. Can you give like a 30 second description of what it yeah. actually is? I mean, it's basically like getting a mortgage or something mm-hmm. like that. Like somebody lends you money and you need to pay it back to them with interest, more or less. The difference between that and an equity investment is there are covenants and like very specific things, like bad things that will happen if you can't pay that money back versus an equity investor is more like a partner in the business. Like if things don't go well, you don't owe them that money back. Mm -hmm. They've purchased like a stake in your business. Yeah. But it's also, I would say it's like the debt providers are going to care about downside protection. Like what is the downside of this investment? Like what's all the horrible stuff? And the equity investors are going to care about upside. And so what we need to do is just run the business really well, think really long term, make something valuable that people will pay for and continue to run the company. Mm-hmm. And then we can, you know, the upside, hopefully there's a ton, right? But it's not like somebody else is saying like, this is what we think the upside is and we want you to do it in this particular way. Yeah. Well, I wish you both the best of luck. 
It's been great to watch Wistia grow in our own backyard and uh, be a customer. Thank you. And, Thank you. Uh, I always love long term. That's one of our core principles is long term decision making at Thoughtbot. And it's great to have a like-minded company to talk to. It's awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Well, that about does it. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 254. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.